Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Welcome to the Uphill Climb podcast, a four-part series where we talk with some of the amazing women who have led the way in shaping women's professional cycling. We take a deep dive into their stories. I'm your host, Jill Yesko, director of the documentary Uphill Climb, The Women Who Conquered the Impossible Race. Connie Carpenter Finney is a cycling icon, a rider known as a fierce competitor whose string of victories on the road and track made her one of the most respected and sometimes feared riders in the peloton. Connie's best known for her gold medal win at the debut of the women's road race at the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. Connie's competitive streak stretches back to the early 1970s. She kicked off her Olympic racing career at the age of just 14 when she competed in speed skating at the 1972 Olympics. After suffering an ankle injury, Connie switched to cycling, where she immediately started winning title after title. In addition to her cycling and speed skating medals, Connie was a champion rower at the University of California at Berkeley, where she earned a master's degree in exercise science. In 1983, Connie married fellow superstar cyclist David Finney. Since her husband's diagnosis with Parkinson's disease, Connie has served on the board of directors of the Davis Finney Foundation to help people with Parkinson's disease. Connie's also an artist and is currently working on a cycling memoir. Connie Carpenter-Finney, welcome to the Uphill Climb podcast. Thanks, Jill. It's great to be here. Great to be joining you and talking about women's cycling. You started out as a speed skater. You represented the U.S. at the Winter Olympics in Sapporo in 1972 when you were only 14. Tell me, what year did you start bike racing, and were you immediately successful? You know, I had the good fortune to have been training very hard all through high school for speed skating. Um, And so when I came to cycling in 1976, after um, actually kind of getting injured and not being able to skate anymore, um, I was extremely fit looking for a sport. So I was successful right away, I think because of that. And also because um, I just wasn't, I wasn't afraid to push myself. If you've seen speed skaters in action, you know, they really push themselves hard. <laughs> and uh, and I knew how to do that. Um, I didn't, you know, it took me a while to catch up with the bike handling and, and especially mechanics. My bike was a, a disaster those first couple of years. <laughs> what were your first victories as a road cyclist? So when I first came into road cycling, uh, you know, I was lucky because the Midwest was so full of um, 
bike events and um, not only for the road, but for the track. And the track was um, where I really found um, a lot of similarities with speed skating because the events are shorter. Uh, also easier uh, because the bike, you, you actually only are riding with one gear and uh, <laughs> no brakes, but that's another story. So I, uh, I raced uh, twice a week on the track. I raced uh, in our club races in Madison once a week. And then a lot of times I was able to go somewhere within a couple hours and race on the weekend so i was racing i had a really you know uphill um uh, climb in a lot of ways that was not like uh like what you'd find today you know i just had so many opportunities to race and develop and uh found myself uh, you know good really quickly of course there weren't that many women racing so in the midwest sometime i'd show up and there'd only be eight or ten women and they'd put us in with the master's age men or with the category threes and quite often i'd be placing in the category threes i always beat all the masters at the time but they didn't like that <laughs> and then uh and then i went to nationals and i went on the track and on the road and that was a big surprise for me but um and, and it was in my first year of racing and i just didn't look back i never went back Back to speed skating. I never even thought about it. How did Title IX, which was the federal statute that prohibited uh, sex-based discrimination in schools and educational programs uh, that receive federal money, how did that affect your athletic career, at, especially at UC Berkeley, where you were an undergrad? You know, I uh, would not have benefited by, from Title IX as a cyclist because it was not a scholastic sport. But when I was at Cal Berkeley, I had the opportunity to um, learn how to row because the crew coach actually learned that I was at Cal. He knew about my cycling background and he was looking for strong, tall women. So I'm I'm um, a little over 5'10". And uh, very strong, <laughs> fit two of his bill, bills, but I did not know how to row. So he uh, fast-tracked me. And the women's crew had, had only been in play for a few years at Cal and then received quite a bit more funding um, as Title IX was rolled out. It did not get rolled out in one year, but I, roll, I uh, rowed on the crew in 79, 80, and 81. And, um, you know, we got to fly all over to meets and, uh, you know, I thought it was a lot of support compared to the other sports I've done. <laughs> but, uh, you know, of course, it's even better today and uh, it's better funded and their, their uh, resources are better. But, uh, but it, it was, I felt fortunate to be on the beginning of that wave. I know your your daughter Kelsey also participated in collegiate athletics, so she is also another beneficiary of Title IX. Tell me tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, Kelsey went to Middlebury to um, study, but also as a, she studied neuroscience there. But she also uh, was a um, cross country ski racer, and Middlebury had a, actually competed uh, normal competes normally as a Division three school. They're quite a small school in Vermont, but she uh, for skiing they they got they got to compete in Division one, and it was really interesting for me to see that level of support and the kind of um, opportunities she had. Uh, with her skiing, even though skiing is also quite a small sport, you know, but, you know, take a look at where it's gone now with women, um, soccer and basketball are excellent examples of how, you know, Title IX, you know, the scholastic sports have fed into um, just, just so many women coming out, you know, that are just fabulous athletes. So it's, it's had a big impact. It has to start somewhere. 
Yeah. Why not from the top, top, top down? Yeah. The men's programs still complain about it because, you know, a lot of those programs, the lesser, lesser, so, so so-called lesser sports have um, suffered because of it. Bike racing experienced what some call a golden era in the 80s. It was a time when I was racing too. Um, The Coors Classic brought the top riders from Europe and around the world to the US. In 1986, the Cycling World Championships were held in Colorado, first time on US soil. What do you remember about cycling in that era? Well, I, um, to be honest, I was not planning to be cycling in that era because I was graduating from college and I thought, um, you know, no, I've done my time in cycling. That's okay. And I had rode on the crew and, you know, I just thought, well, what's my next sport? But actually uh, in 1981, they announced that women's cycling would be included in the 1984 Olympics. And I think that that was what really, um, you know, put us on the, on the map for women's cycling and then everything else, um, really followed number of races, number of sponsors, you know, um, Michael Eisner at the, with the Coors Classic kept upping the game for the women. He wanted the best women in the world to come over and race on our soil. And I'd gone to Europe and raced and found it to be, you know, it just wasn't as organized, not even a tenth of what it's like today um, if you went to Europe to try to race. And so to be able to have the competition come to us was really a luxury. And, you know, in in a long race, we had had seven to 10 days of racing um, in a row. And we had events like the Tour of um, Texas, which was a month-long event, Um, you know, a few races every week. uh, and, And athletes were coming from Europe for those. And, you know, it just kept snowballing. We had a, you know, big race in Central Park sponsored by Self Magazine. The first place was a car, you know, <laughs> a lot of a lot of action and, you know, really a lot of excitement and it changed fast. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life. Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Connie, you retired in 1984. You won the gold medal at the first women's cycling race at at the Olympics, which was really an epic watershed event for for women's cycling. So it was, you know, perhaps uh, some would say at the height of your career. So why did you step away from cycling? 
Well, let's back up a little bit because let's let's also explain that uh, women's we were strictly amateur racers, so you can't really call that a career. <laughs> it was my sports career for sure, but it wasn't um, you know a means to earning a living. There was you could be sponsored, and we did have some from pretty strong sponsorships. Um, so I was able to support myself, but it, it wasn't really deemed a career. And I was 27 years old and the women around me that were retiring were usually younger than I was. So there just wasn't the notion, not even for endurance athletes, that we were going to keep getting better, which of course I would have, <laughs> because we know that now with the science. But I had studied exercise physiology as an undergrad, and I still didn't know that, you know, I could get better. I thought, well, this was it. I'm not going to do anything bigger than this. Our whole race was on TV. It was live on TV. It was the only time uh, women's cycling had been live on TV um, in its entirety. My parents watched from their home in Madison, Wisconsin. And, you know, it was just such a massive moment. I never, it never, con I never considered continuing to be honest it just didn't seem like an option <laughs> does that make sense it doesn't even make sense if you think about it but that was it <laughs> i mean it makes sense in the context of the 80s but certainly not today when you have like you know incredible racers like mariana voss ashley ashley molman who are well into their 30s and still uh at the height of their powers i mean yeah you, yeah, yeah. You, you could have yeah, if you could have really... teleported yourself to today, might you still be racing? Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't think I, I think there were a lot of reasons that I stopped, though. And, and some of them um, had to do with just feeling really burned out because of the lack of opportunity. We just didn't have enough big races. They, you know, the ones we had, like the Coors Classic, it was huge, but we need, I needed one of those every month to keep me going. And we really didn't have that. And, uh, and I also felt the pressure when there, the field wasn't as deep as it is now. And when you're the one that's expected to win all the time, it's, um, you know, or you just have a few people that are really duking it out with each other. It's a lot harder to, um, to kind of keep it going and keep it fun because, you know, above all else, even if it's a career, even if you're the best professional in the world, it's still a game and it has to be fun. I consider you like, the iron lady of of cycling so to kind of hear you say that you you felt pressure is is like has really humanized oh, yeah. you kind yeah. of this is not <laughs> yeah chit chat yeah thank you oh yeah oh yeah i was a mess <laughs> you you hit it very well you everyone was just yeah. like connie yeah, well, it was there's a game face to that, you know, mm -hmm. that's the other part of it. And uh, I think uh, I th I've been asked by younger athletes, too, what would I have done differently? And I always say, um, I wish I would have had a little more fun. <laughs> I hope you're having some fun now, not necessarily like at this moment, but yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I'm, it's all about that. Yeah, yeah. But even my son would say that flashing forward, you know, it just gets to be so hard because everyone's so serious and then the minute you stop it's like oh that feels good <laughs> did you ever consider riding the tour de france feminine was that ever on your agenda so the first year that they had the tour de france um 
for women was in 1984, and it conflicted with the Olympic schedule. Um, so I did, certainly didn't consider it that year. And to be honest, um, the reports that I heard back about it, because the logistics were pretty rough, I think, um, didn't make me want to hang on for another year and try it. Uh, I applaud those that did it and that were successful at it. I think it was uh, an amazing um number of years there and I would have liked to I, I always say like imagine if it would have kept going how big women's cycling might mm -hmm. be now but uh you know we're in a better late than never situation and there are more women uh that are just so fast it's just blazing fast and so uh the women's field is ready for it let's put it that way <laughs> that's a great that's that's a great answer good good segue <laughs> Okay. Okay. Now we're going to talk about you and Davis. Um, okay. So in 1983, you married fellow elite cyclist Davis Davis Finney, and what was it like being part of cycling's power couple in the 1980s? I, this is such a good question because, uh, as you as you know, I've been working on a memoir and I've been trying to articulate. Um, how it felt to to be in a position where your spouse is doing exactly what you're doing, and uh, <laughs> you know you're you're sometimes you're kind of competing with each other to get the results, right? <laughs> or you're really like when we first got together in 1981, and and he started winning races. You know, I would go and win the race, and then he'd win the race. And I was like, wow, I didn't know you were that good. <laughs> And so by the time 84 rolled around, though, you know, he had become a, an extremely successful racer and was winning races in Europe and, you know, was also picked um, to be one of the favorites uh, in the 84 race. Um, and honestly, uh, I had never really considered how kind of unfair it was to both of us that we both raced the biggest race of our amateur careers for him because he did turn pro and do extremely well in the Tour de France and other races, but how uh, extremely unfair it was that we raced on the same day. I don't think uh, with the pressure as favorites, you know, I don't think, um, I, well, I think very few couples have endured that. <laughs> and I was lucky that we went first. So I didn't have to watch him as he did watching me and then try to go out and, um, you know, equal that effort. I talk about pressure, right? Yeah. So I didn't really answer your question because I don't think we didn't look at ourselves as the power couple. There's a lot of couples in cycling that date, you know, one of the best male racers, uh, Tadia Pogachar was at the Tour de France Femme last year because his girlfriend was in the race. It's not that unusual. Uh, it wasn't then and it isn't now, but that we are both successful at the level that we were, I think is um, definitely unusual. So continuing with the um, Carpenter Finney legacy, uh, your son Taylor Finney was a successful professional rider, and his partner is uh, contemporary top pro Kajia Niwiadoma. Do you ever talk to Kajia about your cycling career? And and if you do, what what does she think about? What does she think about it? You know, uh, Taylor and. Kasha have been together since uh, they first met in 2016. So they've been together quite a while. And in the early years, um, 
we talked more about her racing and I would give her a lot of just moral support, you know, and some of it was just very simple uh, advice, you know, just to eat enough in the race or, you know, drink enough and, and just relax, you know, a little bit. And other times uh, she would say, but, you know, what, what would you do? And I, then a lot of times, and Taylor would say, ask these questions too. And I would have to back out a little bit and say, you know, let me just give you the landscape of my racing era. I didn't have all the choices you have. I didn't have the choices of equipment. I didn't have the choices of race. Uh, you know, the number of races that they can race is kind of staggering. You know, the season's very long and you have to pick and choose and they're, they're doing training um, based on power meters and heart rate monitors. We had none of that. You know, and so the sports changed a lot. And I'm very, very um, honest about how much it's changed. But the mentality of an elite athlete is still the same. You know, we're still the same. And that's what we really lean into when we talk. We talk about how hard it is. You know, she's consistently top 10 in the world, but hasn't won, won a race for a while. And that's hard. She was third last year at Tour de France Femme but didn't win a stage, you know? So it's always a little bit of up and a little bit of down and a little bit of, you know, it's hard and it's it doesn't get easy, but I understand it. I feel for her and I am very uh, empathetic and also um, very supportive and upbeat because I love to watch her. She's one of the most popular races, racers in the Peloton because she's so aggressive and I just love to watch her. And, you know, uh, that, just, that just, you know, it just lights up the field and, and it lights us up. Um, we talk about cycling together more than she and Taylor do. Taylor prefers not to talk about cycling, <laughs> although he only watches women's cycling on TV. He does not watch men's cycling on TV any longer because, you know, been there, done that. But with Kasha, he is always watching and always cheering and extremely supportive of her. Um, so that's been fun too. And I, I, had told you know I talked to him early on about how his father and I had so much in common because we had raced together and I think that he's finding that uh, with Kasha too. I I totally agree with you that women's racing today is so seismically different from what you experienced in in the eighties. The fields are have enormous depth. The women are so strong. The institutional support from from sponsors is there. Wh where do you see women's professional cycling going in the next 10 years? Well, I looked into my crystal ball before we talked. <laughs> and I can tell and you And what this. did it say? <laughs> I can tell you this. It is only going to get better. The only fear I have about women's cycling right now is that they keep upping the distance. I think they're at a real sweet spot. I don't think that we, the women, need to be racing the distances that the men race. In fact, I think quite the opposite. I think the women are showing that their races are, in fact, often more interesting than the men because they aren't so long. You don't have two hours of pre-racing to get through the first, you know, 80 to 100 kilometers, and then the racing starts. So, um, so I hope that we don't lean too far into that kind of distance, because right now I think uh, the racing is just, uh, it's fantastic. And I like the fact they're doing circuits. I got to see Amstel Gold this year, and I got to see Kasha and the field go by four times 
we should be able to do that. We shouldn't have to, you know, that that's the motivation to go to the race too, you know, to go there and be able to see them doing some circuits along the way as, as you know, as much as some of the longer distances, I understand uh, point to point racing and, and the reason behind that. But it, as a fan, we want to be able to see our racers. And uh, that was really fun for me. So Connie, I find it really interesting that you say that you um, you don't feel there should be parity in the amount of kilometers or miles that they're racing, but apparently there are still some other inequalities in cycling that that aren't so good. What what are some of them? The women are not paid uh, like the men, so that's probably something people don't talk about enough. The top women are making a fraction of what the top men are making. And if you ask me what's going to happen in the future, I hope to see the women's, the gap between their salaries um, equalize even more than it, than it is now. So kind of you mentioned that you are working on a memoir. Can you give us a little hint of what, what we might be reading soon in your memoir and what else are you up to these days? Yeah, thanks for asking, Jill. I, uh, I've i been working on a memoir for a long time, as it turns out. Uh, you know, when you wait till you're 66 years old, uh, you have a lot of stories to tell. <laughs> and, uh, and so I've been, you know, just writing and um, editing and taking a lot of um, classes, trying to improve my writing. Turns out uh, I needed those classes. I still need a good editor. I'm not ready for publication. But honestly, it's a story of how women's sports has changed and um, what having an elite mindset, uh, an elite athlete mindset has done for me as a human being throughout my life and how it's helped me um, navigate some really hard um, real life situations like uh, Davis's diagnosis with young onset Parkinson's disease when um, our kids were six and 10 and Davis was only 41. You know, that was a life changing moment. And um, I also write about my mom who had MS. And because my mom had MS, I think I uh, was able to navigate that journey in these last 20 plus years with Parkinson's better than most. But we took those lessons to uh, create the Davis Finney Foundation in um, 2005, I think, or maybe it was 2004. And we help millions of people every year learning how to live with Parkinson's um, and, and lead a better life. And there's nothing better in the world than to um, help others. And that's really what we do. <laughs> we help others. So um, I, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the work that we do and um, just feel, you know, especially blessed to be so close to my children who have just had also had really wonderful lives and they're two of my best friends. So I feel really lucky. Connie Carpenter Finney, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Uphill Climb podcast. Wow, thanks so much, Jill. And thanks for all your uh, efforts on behalf of promoting women's cycling. This is awesome. Love it. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Be sure to watch Uphill Climb, now streaming on Peacock. NBC Sports presents coverage of the 2023 Tour de France Femme of X-Swift beginning Sunday, July 23rd, with all eight stages of the race streaming live on Peacock. 
And be sure to watch NBC Sports coverage of the 110th edition of the Tour de France on Peacock, concluding with the final stage on Sunday, July 23rd, live on Peacock at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Oh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.